Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. First, obviously, I would like to thank Mr. Kennedy for taking the time to speak with our panel. It's an honor to be here with him and, of course, with all of them as well. Most of you probably know each of these guests. I'm joined by Natalie Brunel, the co host of Coin Stories, Marty Bent, the founder of TFTC, TFTC and managing partner at 1031, Robert Breedlove, host of the What Is Money podcast, and Mark Moss from The Mark Moss Show, who are obviously all passionate about both Bitcoin and freedom. Today, we have the very rare opportunity to spend 90 minutes with a presidential candidate who's captured the attention of Bitcoiners around the world and to do it on a platform that allows for open conversation and debate and promotes free speech. Now, guys, while there's endless questions we could ask, the focus today will be on money, monetary policy, freedom, and of course, Bitcoin's place in all these key issues. Each panelist will have roughly 15 minutes to speak with Mr. Kennedy. I'm first, so uh, let's start from the beginning. Mr. Kennedy, when did you first hear about Bitcoin and at what point would you say you were orange-pilled? Well, I heard of, I think I heard of Bitcoin, I don't know, around 2009 or, um, I, I, I can't even tell you, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. It was, you know, it was kind of a novelty to me. It was something my kids were very interested in. Um, and they have all kind of, you know, are interested in financial issues and uh, and considered it very exciting. But I didn't, you know, for me it was like I said, just a novelty. I I had my big revelation, and my, you know, it was all at Damascus moment, and during the trucker strike, um, the we had the, my organization, Children's Health Defense had a journalist embedded with the truckers as they crossed Canada, and we were helping to finance the truck truckers uh, on their journey, and we were supporting them. These were men and women who were, uh, who were just asking for things that Americans take for granted, the rights to free association, to assemble, to... Uh, to petition their government to protest peacefully uh, and to avoid a, a government-mandated medical interventions. And it was, a, it was exemplary. It was a template for kind of a, a really beautiful, peaceful protest, political protest. If you see the videos of the truckers, they were, it was like Woodstock. They, they appointed quadrants to pick up garbage uh, they were feeding the poor they were you know dancing in the streets and it was a very racially diverse group uh, of people from all over Canada of every race greed color and religion and they were when they got to Ottawa they were treated as criminals and they were um, and uh, this government of Canada, which I think most people like me had considered a um, a role model for Western liberal democracy, for you know humane, kind-hearted democracy that uh, that held uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of movement as uh, sacred. Suddenly turned into morphed into this kind of this monster, and they did something that you know, was to me unimaginable, which is they use facial recognition and uh, and license plate identification and a number of other uh, technologies to determine the identities of the truckers. 
and then they froze their bank accounts and their credit cards. Oh, the truckers, and these were people, by the way, who had not were peace, peaceful. They had broken no law. They were never accused of breaking a law. They were not charged with any crime. They certainly were not convicted of any crime, and yet the government was able to shut down their bank accounts and their credit cards. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they, they could not pay them. I talked to two truckers, one trucker who was in legal trouble, literally criminal trouble, because he couldn't pay his alimony. Uh, they couldn't pay mortgages. They could not pay for food. They couldn't pay for their children's education. And it occurred to me at that point that uh, freedom of transaction was at least as important as freedom of expression. As if the government has the capacity to starve you to death, to take away your shelter, your transportation. They, you know, they couldn't buy gas. They couldn't move their trucks as they couldn't buy diesel with their credit cards. And if the, if the government has the capacity to bankrupt your business, to, uh, to starve you, to shut down your bank accounts, to stop you from uh, seeking food and shelter and caring for your children, it has the ultimate power to turn you into a slave. And at that point, it struck me. And, you know, only I think about a month before that, I had given a speech in, in Milan, and I had been reading about the programmable currencies that they now, the system that they were experimenting with in China, where if people uh, had a lower social credit score, if they if they were seen on facial recognition, not wearing a mask during a mask day, if they left their home when they, you know, during lockdowns, uh, they were punished. And they were punished so that their credit cards were programmed so that the credit cards would not work if they would, would only work, for example, to buy groceries in a grocery store that was in a certain radius of your home. They wouldn't work for anything else. You couldn't buy gas, you couldn't buy a plane ticket. You, were, you couldn't move. It was a way of locking down disobedient people and, and locking down people who practiced political dissent. And I was talking about that in Milan because Italy at that time was pushing a vaccine passport and digital currencies simultaneously. And I pointed out that the vaccine passport it would have your medical information, but conceivably it could also carry other information about you, including social credit scores. And when combined with digital currencies, that's what they did in China. They made the digital currencies programmable currencies. So I was warning people in Milan and Italy at this very big demonstration that I spoke at that they needed to be wary of those, of those so-called reforms. Uh, but I never thought that it would really happen in Western Asians. I think less a month after I made that speech, we saw what happened in in uh, in Canada. And you know, I want to point out that yesterday, Chase Manhattan Bank uh, suspended the account of Joseph Merkula, of members of his family, of. Uh, officers of his company, the CFO, the CEO, and others, and members of their family. So they they banned not only their business accounts, but they banned their uh, their private accounts. And 
Uh, and Joseph Merkel, as, as many of you may know, is a uh, is one of is a is a doctor who is an osteopath who's very famous in the health and wellness space. He has one of the largest vitamin companies and and uh, uh, nutritional supplement companies in the world. And he wrote an a book during during with me. Uh, not the Fauci book, but another book, criticizing the lockdowns and the medical interventions during the pandemic. And Elizabeth Warren publicly demanded that uh, that Amazon censor that book, which Amazon then did. So I'm in litigation right at this moment with Elizabeth Warren on that lawsuit. Oh, Dr. Mercola is, you know, is a known dissenter. And here we have a powerful banking interest that that it has receives all kinds of federal government support, and it's utterly dependent on its on its relationship with the Fed and with the federal government and with federal government agencies, or its welfare. And uh, and here it is shutting down a uh, one of its customers for political speech. So we live already in this world, and uh, and you know I think that incident alone should be one that all of us should be terrified about, and uh, and it makes the the move toward Bitcoin all the more important. I think that your story echoes the sentiment of quite a few people whose stories we heard. And we've obviously heard many stories of the banking industry cutting off both crypto platforms and individuals who are attached to Bitcoin uh, in, in various ways. So I think that that rings true with quite a lot of people. Now, moving on, you recently shared the idea that you would gradually back the US dollar with a basket of hard assets, including Bitcoin. Can you sp expand on that concept a bit? Yeah, and this is, you know, um... The, my my proposal is, you know, it is um, isn't what I would say is a very modest proposal um, to make a small number of T bills backed by a basket of hard assets, including gold and silver and platinum and Bitcoin. And this is something that my uncle did, um, something similar to what my uncle did a few weeks actually before his death, when he ordered the printing of a small number of silverbacks. Of silver certificates, which you know, I got when I was I saw a lot of when I was a kid, and have kind of dis have disappeared shortly after that. But you know, we all know that the unrestrained spending by our government has has created massive risk for the global economy, and it's engendered tremendous concentrations of wealth and wealth inequality, and uh, and helped to offshore our jobs, and uh, you know, it, and and created a lot of other problems. Um, my policy of, of gradually inserting a new commodity reserve, small number of commodity reserve assets at the base of the money system um, may be a way to discipline the Fed, to, to put some discipline into the marketplace, to give some consumers, Americans who would want to buy those assets, an ability to buy something that actually is uh, commodity-based. And and with the hope, and you know, it's something that my my economic my council of economic advisors is looking at right now. Because my purpose is to to 
rebuilt the middle class in America. And um, and they're looking at, we are looking at, you know, where the, how this, that kind of commodity-based asset might, uh, might put a little bit of discipline into the, uh, into the Fed and the practice of just printing money arbitrarily uh, with with no control and no backstop at all. Um, I don't, I think, I see zero threat to our monetary policy from this or to our financial marketplace. Um, and, you know, my, my, my proposal is to do something very, very similar to what my uncle did with Silverbacks in 1963. Hi, Mr. Kennedy. Natalie Brunel here. Thank you so much for answering our questions. And thank you to Scott and the other panelists. I recently had the chance to read your book, American Values, and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about your family's backstory. And one part that resonated with me was when you wrote that your grandfather, Joe Kennedy, believed America's prosperity was its most reliable source of stability and national security, and that we must choose to protect democracy over being seduced by imperialism. How would you grade us on these values? And secondly, how do we make America prosperous to protect these ideals? Well, you know, that, I, I, I mean, the grade would be a F grade, and, and this is something, it's a this this was a theme among our our founding, you know, the framers of our constitution is that universally they wanted to keep America out of foreign wars. John Quincy Adams spoke for the rest of the framers when he said that America goes not sorry America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, we we commend democracy in other nations. We support it. Um, morally, but we are not, uh, we, we don't send our military abroad because they understood that you could, cannot have a, uh, an imperial, an imperium abroad, an imperial nation abroad and continue to have a democracy. We obviously had a bit of a technical issue there. We're going to bring him back up and we'll continue on. I assume everybody uh, can can hear me, but that uh, he dropped off. So we're going to send another invite there. We'll be back uh, momentarily. Panelists, while we're bringing him back up, you guys can feel free to... Oh, here, here he is. I was going to say we could uh, discuss what we've heard so far, but we're going to go ahead and uh, invite him back up to co-host and uh, continue on. Hello. Can you hear me? We've got, we've got you. Uh, Classic Twitter. Okay. Sorry about that. So I was saying that you know that the um, our our founding fathers were 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 unambiguous that we could not afford to turn America into an imperium abroad because it would be inconsistent with democracy. And we would turn ourselves into a garrison state, a security state, a surveillance state. My grandfather said we should arm ourselves to the teeth around our borders, create fortress of America. The real strength of American of a country comes not from uh, military power, but from economic power, from financial power. I'm building a robust middle class, uh, and that's what we should focus on. There's a, a famous historian called Paul Kennedy, who's no relationship to my uh, family, who's a professor at Yale. He's written a number of books looking at the declines of an empire. And he's looked at the declines of every empire in the last 500 years. 
years and traced all of them to the overextension of their militaries abroad. And when I was seven years old and on my birthday on January 17th, 1961, three days before my uncle took office, the outgoing president, Dwight Eisenhower, gave this famous speech, which today really stands as what I believe the most important speech in American history, where he warned America against the domination by a military-industrial complex. And he said, by the way, a medical-industrial complex uh, driven by uh, federal scientific bureaucracies. And, uh, and people forget about that warning in his speech, but it's very, it was very prescient you know, uh, looking back the COVID pandemic. But uh, my uncle, when he came into office, President Kennedy, immediately realized that this was going to be his battle. Two months in, he had the CIA and the short chiefs of staff lie to him about the Bay of Pigs and, uh, and, and you know, get us into a, it, try to suck him into a U.S.-led uh, invasion of Cuba. And he refused, but those men in the, in the Cuban battalion, in the brigade, uh, were dying on the beach. He came out of the office. He realized that the whole thing had been a trap by the CIA by Alan Dulles, who he then fired. He hired Charles Cabell, who was the director of military operations at the CIA, and Richard Bissell, the, who was in charge of clandestine activities, who had all lied to him. And he said, coming out of that meeting, that he wanted to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And he said that because he realized that the function of the agency was no longer to protect Americans' national security, but it had devolved into doing exactly what Eisenhower had warned about, of providing the military-industrial complex, the military contractors and the Pentagon with a constant pipeline of new wars and that, um, and it it was the greatest danger to the republic. And my uncle spent the next thousand days of his presidency in a in 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 combat with his own military uh, brass and intelligence apparatus. He he refused to go into Laos. He re who wanted him to go to war, who considered war both inevitable with the Soviet Union, uh, inevitable, desirable. He refused to go into Laos. He refused to go into Cuba on both occasions. He refused in 62 to go into Berlin. And he refused to send combat troops to Vietnam despite their pleadings that he sent 250,000 combat troops. In the end, he sent 16,000 advisors, Green Berets, who's, who's, who were not allowed under the terms of rules of engagement to participate in combat activities. Many of them did. And in October 1963, a month before his death, October 22nd, he heard that a Green Beret had died in Vietnam, and he asked his aide to bring him a casualty list. And the aide brought him a casualty list that showed that 75 of uh, U.S. service and these advisors had been killed. And he said, that's too many. And that day he signed National Security Order 263, ordering all uh, troops home, all military advisors home from Vietnam within a year, with the first thousand coming home beginning the next month. Well, a month later, he was killed. 
And a week after that, President Johnson remanded that order. Within a year, and 250,000 troops, which is what they had been trying to get my Uncle Jack to do. And it became an American war, and Nixon, who followed him. My father then campaigned against Johnson and the war in 68, and was killed in that campaign. Uh, Nixon then became president, that 560,000 troops, and, and 56,000 never came home including my cousin, George Skako, who was killed in the Tet Offensive. And, um, and that war then, you know, led to the next war. And so we've been now, and, you know, we've had these series of traumas that have pushed us into the surveillance state. We had the Vietnam War, we had Martin Luther King's death, my father's death, my uncle's death, Malcolm X's death, and, and uh, uh, COVID-19, uh, most recently, and, and they, the World Trade Center attack, all of which have pushed us down the road into a surveillance state. And I would say America today is the surveillance state that Dwight Eisenhower warned us against, and that's why I would give us an F for failure. Well, I certainly think a lot of people would agree, but digging a little bit more into the idea of rebuilding America's prosperity you have acknowledged on several shows that today in America, we don't have free markets. We have crony capitalism, this idea of brutal competition for the poor and cushy socialism for the rich. And I would extend that to say that today's oligarchs are sort of a coalition of capital comprised of Wall Street, the big banks, massive corporations and the political elites. Meanwhile, the working class you talk about a lot largely feels very left out, left behind. And a lot of us think Bitcoin somewhat fixes this. Um, but how will you tame the oligarchs and reduce their power? And what does that mean for the Fed and money printing? Well, you're right about that. And, you know, and, and it's not a Republican or Democratic issue. Both the uh, Biden and uh, Trump administration uh, essentially had the same fiscal and monetary policies and you know, which was just printing money. We print over the last six years during those two administrations, uh, our national debt increased by $13 trillion. That's a 40% of all the money that's ever been borrowed since George Washington. And the Fed printed $4 trillion, and that's 48% of all the money that's ever been printed by the Fed since it opens its doors in the fall of... Uh, of 1914. And so what has this done? I love what you said, associating that money printing with these huge concentrations of wealth and the disparities between rich, rich and poor. The poor are suffering because of the inflation. Energy prices are now up 37% this year. Um, groceries are up 27%. And the U.S. worker has not benefited from all that uh, that money pouring into the marketplace, U.S. wages, and this really extraordinary, our, our growth rate, despite all of that money being poured in, has been only 2% per, per year. And it was 5% per year with virtually no money pouring in during my uncle's administration. And what's happened to wages? Well, wages have gone up uh, by barely 3.5% since December of 2016. And meanwhile, this is this is uh, hourly wages have gone up 3.5% since 2016. Meanwhile, 
the top 0.1% of households, the top 130,000 households have seen their income, their net worths increase by 30%. So the top dogs, the fat cats, are have got have gotten ten times richer from that huge influx of wealth into the market, and the while uh, while workers, people who actually you know go out and work for a living, hourly wages have basically stayed the same. So it's not helping the poor. And what do we need to do uh, to deal with it? One is we need to bring back the the Glass Steagall Act. Um. Uh, and that and Klaus Stiegel's entire scheme for central banking, we need you know the, the Fed is the captain of not just Wall Street but of Washington spenders because it you know, it erroneously attempts to to manipulate the the mainstream economy with low interest rates and stock market supports. We need to get the Fed out of Wall Street on a day to day basis. The original scheme that Glass Steagall had was that uh, the, the central bank would operate through, through marketplace discount windows at 12 regional banks operating as far from Wall Street as they could possibly get. And the essential, essential purpose of the class of that central bank was to keep commercial banking liquid. But they did so by charging market-based rates of interest and a penalty spread on the privilege of using the discount window. Oh, it... It didn't have, it wasn't susceptible to financial bubbles or Main Street inflation because it could only issue credit, central bank credit, which means to print money, of course, um, based on goods that were already produced. And therefore, it automatically kept the supply and demand in balance uh, because the bank credit it enabled had to be convertible into gold on demand. Of course, we, we've lost that. We need to bring you know, a lot of Glass-Steagall back. And, um, and you know, uh, and uh, Bitcoin is part of the process because Bitcoin allows small investors to actually have an inflation-proof currency. And, um, and that, you know, that's, that is part of the freedom. I mean, because right now, anybody can use fiat currency is at the mercy of this system, which is designed to strip mine wealth from, from Main Street and from the middle class and from the poor in this country and put it into the pockets of the super rich. Um, we, need to, uh, we need to cut costs. We need to restore fiscal balance uh, through long-term saving. We need the first and most important and obvious thing that I'm going to do is got the military budget, which is now about one point three trillion dollars a year. If you you can't cut uh, the three hundred billion to veterans, or and and some of the national security uh, is less susceptible to cuts, but we'll get that will get better over time as we stop meddling abroad. Nine hundred billion now goes to the military. Oh, we were told. At the beginning of the, when, when you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were going to get a peace dividend. We were told that the military budget would be cut from $600 billion to $200 billion, And that was enough to protect our country. When Eisenhower, at the height of the Cold War, the, when, when we were facing the Soviet Union with a threat that is nowhere in sight today, the Soviet Union at the apex of its power, 
He cut military spending to the equivalent of today's dollars of $500 billion. Well, today it's $900 billion. So at very least, we could cut it by 45% and get back to where Eisenhower was at the beginning of the Cold War. I mean, at the height of the Cold War. And that will save us about $4 trillion over the next 10 years. If we don't do this, um, we're going to increase our our debt projections by $20 trillion over the next decade on top of the $33 trillion we already have. And that, is, that torrent of red ink is going to bury future generations in impossible debt. And, uh, and they'll cause, that'll cause interest rates to soar. Uh, and we need to reduce that by 50 and probably 75%. We can do that by money savings in reducing chronic disease in our country. Our, we, have, we pay more for medical care, double, triple, or quadruple than Europeans pay GM per, per, um, per, per capita. Oh, and the reason for that is good chronic disease. We, we went from 6% of, of Americans having chronic disease when I was a kid to over 55% with chronic disease today and growing. And we need to cut that, and we can do that very quickly. We have to, we have to identify the cause so we know what they are, and we have to eliminate them. Um, and uh, right now, we spent $4.3 trillion a year on health care costs. It's so much more than anybody else in the world. We need, and 80% of that goes to chronic disease. It should be 6%. And we need to, you know, when my uncle was president in 1960, um, we paid about one twentieth for healthcare of what we do today in real dollars, and a lot of that is because of the explosion of chronic disease in our country. And that, for the long term, is probably the most important thing that we can do. And it's going to be not my number one priority as president. I, I, you know, I can tell you some other ideas for cutting. Let me just add one more: the GAO, the General Accounting Office. For the last 25 years, every year produced a report about waste in government where it identifies uh, certain expenditures that should have expired years ago, where people are, in many cases, literally doing nothing. And yet those expenditures just get automatically renewed every year because of uh, some, you know, congressman's nephew has the job or whatever. Um, for political reasons, but they're not doing our country any good. So all of those reports, every year, nothing is ever done about them. They sit on a shelf at the GAO. I'm going to name a, a essentially a base closing commission, the way that we did for our military at the end of the, of the Cold War, to go through those lists, those 25 years of lists, and identify the, the ripest fruit to pick from that list all of the worst ways in government that you know are indefensible. And I'm going to put all of those cuts into a single bill, and I'm going to ask Congress to do an up or down vote on them. And nobody's ever done anything like that. And it, I think it's the one way to really, everybody promises to cut waste, but nobody knows how to do it. And I think this is a, a, a real way that we can do this and that we can do it very quickly. Mr. Kennedy, uh, Marty Beck here. Thank you for joining us for this discussion. 
Uh, to build on your comments about the surveillance state from earlier, I think one thing as an industry that we've really been paying attention to and worry about is the encroachment KYC AML regulation on Bitcoin companies. Uh, these KYC AML regulation seem to be pretty ineffective, yet they, they lost a bunch of compliance costs on individual companies and the encroachment seems to be getting worse. Uh, as of January 1st, 2024, individuals who receive more than $10,000 worth of Bitcoin from another individual are going to be forced to report the personal information of their counterpart in that trade to the IRS. So as of Jan 1st, 2024, the government and the IRS will be expecting individuals to collect names, addresses, and social security information on other individuals, uh, essentially expanding the KYC AML reach uh, from companies to individuals. And considering that these regulations seem to be wholly ineffective and completely burdensome on companies and seem to be individuals, what in your mind are things that we can do to begin to peel back these invasive uh, regulations that seem to power the surveillance state? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, um, the one justification for it that's legitimate is to prevent money laundering. But it, 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 what I see is that, you know, all of these things, the money laundering clients, which, by the way, I think the money laundering issue is a legitimate issue and that, that you know, we need uh, controls that are sufficient to do that. But a lot of these issues, the KYC issue, the, uh, the environmental issues are smoke screens. Uh, for just uh, uh, this overwhelming hostility by uh, Mr. Gensler and the, the Biden administration in general toward Bitcoin and the favoritism that they are, you know, showing to BlackRock and um, and to uh, Goldman and to uh, you know and to their friends on, on Wall Street. Who's there? I, I think. Uh, Gensler's approved over 50 ETFs for BlackRock. And those ETFs are going to be, you know, are, are right now, that's the, the best, easiest way for you to own Bitcoin um, because people don't want to pay the taxes for conversion and deal with all the issues that you're thinking, talking about and the difficulty in banking that which they've created. And so they're funneling people in these ETFs and as soon as they create a central bank digital currency, BlackRock will transfer transform those ETFs from Bitcoin into CBDCs and trap us all in that, you know, uh, in that kind of slavery. So, you know, my I don't know exactly. I need to study this issue and get a lot of expert advice from people like you. But what I'm going to say to you is that what I want is transparency. I want to bring the uh, the innovation ecosystems and entrepreneurial ecosystems of that uh, that grow out of Bitcoin. I want to keep those in America. I want to end the barriers as much as I can to Bitcoin America. I want to do you know what one of the things that we do with the dot com revolution is we suspended taxes for the first de decade, and it brought all the engineers and all the and it made. Made Silicon Valley a safe place for the industry, and um, 
And it brought that ecosystem to our country and made us the dominant force in the dot-com boom. And we need to be doing the same thing with Bitcoin. And I don't know, you know, I've talked about uh, some kind of suspension of the capital gains taxes uh, for uh, for conversion of Bitcoin. I, and I am my economic, my financial team, my council on economic advisors looking at that, running the numbers on that right now. I mean, one thing we want to avoid is creating huge windfalls for BlackRock and for Goldman. Uh, but there may be evidence to do that. We may be able to do that with a cap on um, on capital gains. You know, uh, uh, with a with a cap, like for example, a million dollar cap, so that small investors who are into Bitcoin uh, would not have to pay the capital gains taxes. Super large holding companies like BlackRock and Goldman would. But uh, we don't. What I don't want to do right now. If you own a, a, a big chunk of Bitcoin, the best thing for you to do is if you're going to convert it, you're, when you convert it, you're getting double tax. So if you buy a car with Bitcoin, you pay taxes twice. And if you want to convert your Bitcoin into dollars, you need, you, you're going to get you know, raked over the coals. And what that's incentivizing is a, is an exodus of, of the individuals who are the most innovative individuals, the greatest entrepreneurs in our country, some of the greatest engineers and thinkers who are being driven out of our country to Portugal, to Germany, to, uh, to Puerto Rico, or whatever. And I want to keep those people here in the United States. I want a system that's fair. I want a system that is transparent. I want a system that is welcoming to Bitcoiners and not hostile to them. And you know, I want it. I, I want a currency that is is actually a currency. If you have Canadian dollars, and you come to the United States and you want to make a conversion, you don't have to pay a tax on them. Even if there was a, you know, even if the dollar got strong and the Canadian dollar got got weak or whatever, or the Canadian dollar gets strong and the U.S. dollar is weak, you don't. And and so your Canadian money is is more valuable now. 25% more valuable. You don't have to pay a capital gains tax on that 25%. You just do the conversion. And, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, it's troubling to me that it's treated as a commodity. And I think what what will happen over time is that when more and more countries follow El Salvador, um, and actually adopt and begin trading at bitcoins that you know there's going to be pressure for countries to uh, uh, to get rid of those capital gain taxes. But in the meantime, I think that we should do it in a way that encourages the use of Bitcoin by smaller investors, by smaller holders, that does not create these massive uh, windfalls for for Blackstone or uh, for BlackRock. And, and Coldman, um, but to lift all of the impediments that that we can from transacting in Bitcoin and really turn it into a currency that people can go out on the street and people can protect their wealth. They can, you know, the middle class people can buy a, a Bitcoin, protect their wealth, and then use it for transactions without getting punished for it. Another uh, another problem we see on the horizon. 
in the industry within the United States revolves around the Bitcoin mining industry and its energy intensity. Uh, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about where Bitcoin mining fits into the energy sector and how it can actually be additives and make the sector more efficient overall. However, there do seem to be individual states like New York that are beginning to enact discriminatory laws or taxes against Bitcoin miners, signal, signaling them out and treating them unfairly uh, compared to other industries or individuals that are consuming electricity. If elected, would you be able to do anything to prevent that discrimination against the mining industry? Well, I don't know exactly what I can do to change New York State law, but I, you know, I'm an environmentalist. I was on a, I was a partner in the biggest green tech venture capital firm in the country, um, which was Vantage Point. Um, my company's built the Ivanpah plant, which is the largest solar thermal plant in North America, one of the largest, uh, I think the second largest, uh, third largest plant in North America, and another a company that I was part owner of built the uh, the PVC uh, plant at Sault Ste. Marie. And so the, the, the two of the biggest plants in North America that I was involved in, I've been involved in wind and, uh, and all kinds of renewable energy investments. And, um, you know, I, I care about the environment. I care about efficiency but i believe that the environmental arguments about bitcoin are mostly smoke screens to obscure, obscure the real motives for suppressing bitcoin and if bitcoin threatens the monopoly on money that has allowed the u.s and other governments to print endless money to finance endless wars and to finance uh nonsensical giant environmentally destructive projects not that you know the that's another one of these you know uh, uh outcomes these terrible outcomes from fiat currency uh and and in truth as most of you know as miners you know that your profit margins are completely dependent on low-cost energy so you have a huge incentive to chase low-cost energy. And a lot of times that means uh, chasing variable power sources um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, a Bitcoin is a flexible load activity, which means it can outbalance the grid by shutting down at peak times and using, using up the slack when demand is low. And that actually provides a really important revenue stream that may, uh, you know, may make certain solar and wind plants marginally profitable as opposed to unprofitable and therefore financeable because you can move your Bitcoin to that site and you can mine there. And, you know, and that, a lot of times it, that peaks when the electrons are hitting the earth, that peak, and there's a low demand. Um, that plant is producing the power anyway. Transforming those electrons into electricity, but it can't sell it. There's no market. And if you put Bitcoin operations at that site, you can uh, you can turn that that plant profitable. So it actually is a, uh, I think, a potential huge boom to the creation of renewable energy. Somebody who's tried to finance and who has successfully financed 
renewable energy projects, I can tell you that those kind of marginal revenue streams can make a huge, can make the decisive difference as to whether or not you can or cannot get financing for that project. So I think, you know, in the, if we, if we do it intelligently, and I don't, and I think a lot of you guys are already doing this, um, it is a, it is actually a huge environmental benefit. Even when it's using carbon energy, the carbon energy it uses, for example, you know, it, North, North Carolina has the biggest coal fleet in the country. That coal fleet, the plants are 80 years old, so all the tenants are already advertised. So they're very cheap to operate and they can sell energy for 11 cents a kilowatt hour. But the, the coal plant has to operate all night. You can't turn it off. You can't. And so at night, that energy is dropping basically to free. You know, people pay two cents, one cent, two cents, and they're, they're starved for that. Um, so, you know, even when they do, uh, when Bitcoin is, is using carbon-based energy, it's usually, usually using carbon-based energy off-peak when the energy is going to be burned anyway. The coal is going to be burned. The carbon and the other, and the mercury and the rain and all the other bad stuff is going to go in the atmosphere anyway. You're not adding to the problem. And then, you know, there's also these opportunities that many Bitcoiners are, are chasing um, to monetize uh, methane discharges from landfills and from... Uh, and from gas wells and, uh, and other places around the country uh, where, that, uh, where that gas would otherwise be flared off. And you can take it and actually turn it into energy. And that also is a net environmental benefit. So I don't, you know, I think it's a huge mistake that these states are making. And I do not think, I think the, um, that it's motivated not by you know maybe the legislature has been who's actually pushing these bills have been has been fooled. Uh, the people actually behind these bills are the you know are the uh, are the financial power centers who do who are terrified of this competition from Bitcoin and and for what its capacity to expose the fraud in the in the monetary systems. Hey Bobby, it's great to speak with you again. Um, Who as is Bitcoiners, that? many of us are very passionate about educating people on the nature of money. So, what I'd like to ask you is, what is the economic difference, if any, between money printing, also called quantitative easing, and currency counterfeiting? <laughs> so, uh, it's legal. That's the big difference. I, that may be the only difference. So there's no economic difference, just a legal one. Yeah, I would say that's the only difference. Thank you. Short answer. I'll ask you a longer question now. Um, Jim Mars wrote a book called Crossfire in which he presented a theory that Kennedy was trying to rein in the power of the Federal Reserve and the forces opposed to this action might have played at least some part in the assassination. And in that book, Mars alleged that uh, Executive Order 11110 was an effort by Kennedy to transfer power from the Fed to the United States Department of the Treasury. 
by replacing Federal Reserve notes with silver certificates. Uh, in your estimation, was JFK attempting to rein in the power of the Fed with Executive Order 11110? And if so, was this a factor in the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Uh, he, he was certainly trying to rein in the power of the Fed. My grandfather was disturbed by what had happened to the Fed. And my uncle was was alarmed by it too. And, you know, they knew enough about monetary policy to see what the end game was going to be, which is that the rich were going to get richer, that we were going to turn our country into an oligarchy, an, a, a feudal aristocracy, and away from democracy. So um, I have never seen any evidence that, um, that anybody uh, involved in his assassination... And are you, can you guys hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we do. Yeah, fine. yeah, I have not seen any evidence that anybody involved in this assassination was motivated by that. You know, we know the people at this point who were involved. You know, there's been many, many now confessions. People like E. Howard Hunt, like David Morales, like um, David, uh, 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 um. David, David Adley Phillips and uh, many of the Cuban players who were involved have, uh, you know, have d discussed their involvement. And there's thousands and thousands of debates that document that, um, you know, we know. I've talked to people each other who were involved in the assassination who were there that day. Um, and, uh, um, and you know, there's, there's so much documentary evidence. We... We we have a very clear idea of uh, of who was involved. I think those people were mainly motivated by the withdrawal uh, from Vietnam, which was a CIA project, and by most of all by my uncle's uh, uh, failure to invade Cuba on two occasions when the CIA wanted him to, and his and then ordering the uh, the groups. That were like Alpha Sixty Six and the other groups of assassins that were uh, that were harassing Cuba and Cuban commerce and Russian commerce from ports and hideaways in Miami and on, on Florida from Fort Myers down. Um, my uncle had the and father had the Coast Guard come and confiscate their boats and their weapons and stop the harassment. That was part of his settlement with Khrushchev after the Cuban Missile Crisis when he was trying, moving towards peace with Russia, and part of that peace was, and with Cuba. Uh, by the end of the day, my uncle was killed. He and an emissary meeting with Castro to talk about ending the embargo. And Castro, you know, I've spoken to Castro about that myself uh, at length on several occasions, and um, he, he was, uh, and uh, the, the uh, you know, the indications are that he, the principal anger that this these this the individuals from the CIA who were involved in the assassination, the principal source of their anger was about Cuba and Vietnam. Thank you, thank you. Um so one last question. Uh one of my favorite philosophical questions is what is money? 
Could you just speak to the fundamental nature of money as you see it and its impacts on human psychology, on politics, and its role in world history? You know, somebody else should would be much better at speaking. Of that. I don't want to waste your time because my thoughts about that are probably very sophomoric compared to most of the, virtually everybody on this phone call. Know, who spends a lot of time studying money, reading about it, and I just don't have. If you ask me about a subject that I, you know, have given a lot of thought, a wealth of information, but with this subject, it's never been a preoccupation for me. It, it literally became a preoccupation when I saw the links with with freedom. So I haven't done my homework, you know, in uh, on money, on really understanding it, delving into it, and it's fascinating. Because it's, you know, that dollar is, it has no value. The only value it has, the faith that people have in it, that it will have value. And that faith is, uh, you know, based upon a lot of precepts that may or may not be uh, firmly rooted in a, you know, in concrete. Oh, but I don't understand it. And as I said, my, my thoughts about this would be infantile compared to some of the stuff and, uh, that you you know, the, some of the ways that you guys have of thinking about this, some of the very, very sophisticated ways that you guys have who spend your life thinking about it. And I really, I get dragged kicking and screaming into this issue because I saw the connection with freedom. And I realized that, you know, I always thought freedom of speech is the most important freedom. And suddenly I realized, wait a minute, transactional freedom is just as important. Because if you don't have that, you're a slave. And that's probably the most sophisticated thing, truth that I can say about it. You know, that, that would be helpful to anybody. That it is, it's about freedom. Um, you just mentioned uh, some of these uh, regulatory bodies that have been captured. You mentioned the SEC. You also mentioned the Fed. Uh, so speaking about the Fed, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is supposed to be independent. Uh, but we can see how, you know, Trump really leaned on them. Biden seems to have leaned on them um, to ease monetary policy for social programs, things like that. Um, since they have seemed to be sort of, uh, you know, captured um, to, to the kind of point that you just made, how do you see working with them moving forward? Um, you know, I know you talked about trying to partially back the U.S. dollar with gold or a basket of hard currencies or whatever. So how do you see working with the Fed um and central banks under your administration. Yeah, and by the way, I don't think that is that is going to solve the problem. You know, that is not that is a that's a mechanism for sort of testing the water and testing the appetite and maybe putting some discipline um, because I it's not something I do across the board to every T bill, but I would make an offering of T bills that are are like backed by a bat, basket of commodities like platinum, silver, gold, and Bitcoin. Uh, and I also really want to, you know, encourage the proliferation of Bitcoin. I think everything the government does to do that um, I injects discipline into the system because if people, if Americans have an alternative, a, cur a currency that is actually commodity-based, that is a base currency, um, it makes it much more difficult for them to just print money whenever they want because people have an alternative where they can go to. And, you know, that. The, the the value currencies always win in those competitions. People will, you know, go to those currencies. They'll be drawn to them. Um, but the, the 
at gaining mastery of the Fed right now, you know, we've lost sovereignty over our monetary system. It is being run by uh, by obscure forces that are linked to uh, to the big banks and to Wall Street, and uh, and they are operating it for um, for nefarious purposes, and or in other words, non-democratic purposes. We've lost all transparency, and and um, and what they're trying to do now is to do the same thing, get that same kind of extend that control first to the states and then to individuals. And we need the state legislatures on our side um, to reform this issue. And you know, this is happening in some states like Tennessee right now. Uh, then working with Catherine Austin Fitz and others to uh, to reassert control. And we need to work with the attorney generals in those states and with the legislatures to uh, re uh, to make the system to regain transparency in the system and to regain our sovereignty of it. And um, and you know, I uh, I am bringing in a, a a group of advisors who this is all they think about, and um, and that's what we need to do to restore Main Street. Because the purpose of the Fed now is to commoditize Main Street, suck all the wealth and equity away from the American public and concentrate it, and uh, and we need to turn that around, and uh, and so that's you know that that's going to be one of the primary um, missions of my presidency. So then, just to clarify. Um, sort of, uh, even though they are semi-quasi-independent, uh, but you want to kind of put them back in a box and sort of restrict their influence over the markets? Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Okay, great. Appreciate that. Um, I, probably my last question here, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, that you've been, you know, an environmentalist, and of course, your your track record speaks to that. Uh, Marty asked you a question about Bitcoin mining, um, and you sort of answered that you don't think they should regulate the energy for certain use cases. I'm just curious of your overall energy policy. You know, the United States is in a situation where our main exports at this point are energy. Um, and so, and we've seen specifically with the Biden administration, the energy um, industry sort of coming under attack a little bit. So I'm curious, uh, being an environmentalist and with that track record and, and so forth, what your overall energy policy would be, um, not just in using it for Bitcoin mining, of course, as you as you mentioned, so you already know that Bitcoin mining chases the cheapest energy. So we need a, a strong energy uh, industry so we have that cheap access. But what is your overall energy uh, policy? Uh, my energy policy is and always has been market based. And, um, you know, you can go back and see speeches that I made 35 years ago where I say that the the best thing that could happen to the environment is if we had true free market capitalism because market, a true free market promotes efficiency and efficiency means the elimination of waste and pollution is waste. In a, in a, a true free market would require us to properly value our natural resources and it's the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to use them wastefully. And in a true free market, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making other people poor, the rest of us poor. 
They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for everybody else. And they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. You show me a polluter and I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline in the free market and force the public to pay his production costs. That's what all pollution is. You know, I I fought the General Electric Company for many years on the Hudson River. I represented commercial fishermen on the Hudson. We have the oldest commercial fishery in North America. I represented hundreds of fishermen who are using fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians and the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam and then passed down through their generations. And um, and, uh, and they came together to, to fight pollution on the river because their livelihoods were being destroyed. This is a fishery that was self-regulating in ingenious ways. They regulated themselves. They all, you know, they would count the fish, the recruiters that came into the river every year, and then they would figure out how many were needed, and they would pull their net. The entire, every fishing family in the river would pull their nets on certain days of the week to allow the recruiters, you know, the, the pregnant females to go up the river and spawn so that they would have them for next year. They'd done this the same way for hundreds of years, and it was a thriving, it's the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. And at night, in the 1980s, they began closing down. And today, you know, I represented thousands of fishermen. Now there's only one or two left because... The General Electric Company dumped its PCBs in the river. It was illegal. And they did it up in Troy, New York, but they had they had a lot of political clout. And they were able to tell the governor, if you don't let us dump the PCBs in illegally, we're going to move 60,000 jobs out of New York. Well, the governor let them, and they said, we'll go over to New Jersey and we'll, we'll, dump, we'll dump it from over there, and, we'll, and they'll get the taxes, and they'll get the jobs. So... Uh, a series of governors accepted those threats and let them dump their PCBs in. And then in the 80s, he closed those plants. They, they, they closed down 60,000 jobs. So there's no General Electric worker in New York State today. But now we still have the pollution. And it's a $4.3 billion cleanup bill that nobody has. And every fisherman on the river is now... And everybody in the Hudson Valley is General Electric's PCBs in our flesh and our organs. And they've closed down this fishery that enriched the palate and the history and the culture of the Hudson Valley for three and a half centuries. And those fishermen understood that there was nothing wrong with their business model. What was wrong is that somebody had corrupted the political system to allow them to violate the law by, by privatizing the Hudson River. The Constitution of the state of New York says the river, the Hudson belongs to the people of the state, the fish belong to the people, everybody has a right to use them. Nobody can use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. But General Electric got a permit to basically own all the fish on the Hudson because nobody else can use them anymore because they're too toxic. There's a lot of fish in the river. Uh, but they're dangerous to eat because they're loaded with General Electric's PCBs. And that's what all pollution is. And all the environmental laws that we pass after Earth Day 1970 are all designed to restore free market capitalism by forcing actors in the marketplace to pay the true cost of bringing their product to market. In, in a true free market, if you want to bring a product to market, you have to pay for all the costs of getting it there. 
including the cause of cleaning up your mess, which is a, a lesson we were all supposed to have learned in kindergarten. But what polluters do is they figure out ways to get the public to shoulder some of those costs, and they can lower the price of their product and outcompete their, you know, their, uh, their honest competitors. And so what I've said for years is, you know, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a free marketeer. I go out into the marketplace and I catch the cheaters, the polluters. And I say to them, I'm going to force you to internalize your costs the same way that you internalize your profits. Because as long as somebody's in externalizing their costs, they're distorting the marketplace and none of us gets the advantage of the efficiency, the prosperity, the democracy. That true free market capitalism promises our country. And, you know, um, I'm gonna. I, I, I'll say this: that you know, if you look directly at, at energy policy alone, which was your question, what I would say simplistically is my policy is to end the subsidies to the big industries, and carbon gets the biggest subsidies. Carbon uh, gets 5.2 trillion uh, globally. Uh, about one point one point three trillion annually, and just from the oil. Uh, in in the oil in our country alone, and coal is the most heavily subsidized. So um, it it is the and, and nuclear, of course. You know nobody nobody's going to build a nuclear power plant unless it's fully subsidized. And then all the cost of disposing of the waste for the next thirty thousand years, which is five times the length of recorded human history, are all uh, externalized. The taxpayer pays those. Nuclear also has. The same thing the vaccine companies has is it has immunity from liability. So that if you they have an accident at the plant, they don't have to pay the cost. You do. Oh, what I say is let's make everybody internalize their cost, and you know, and then see what happens. And you know what's going to happen is we're going to move to renewable power because right now it costs a billion dollars a gigawatt to build a solar plant in America. You know, which I built. And it costs about 1.1 billion a gigawatt to build when it costs 3.6 billion to build a coal plant. And then you got to pay for the fuel. So the, the, uh, the, when you build a wind, a wind or solar plant, it's free energy forever. The big impediment is we don't have a green system that can carry renewable power to all the markets. And that's what we need. We need a real market-based plan that will turn every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant, and power our country on American ingenuity, what Franklin Roosevelt called America's industrial genius rather than Saudi Arabian oil or Appalachian coal. You How you build a coal plant for three, for three and a half times what it costs to build a wind plant or a solar plant. And now you've got to go to the Appalachian Mountains, cut down the Appalachians. So we've cut down the 500 biggest mountains in the Appalachians. We we explode um, enough uh, ammonia nitrate explosives in Appalachia every day, the same amount every week as a, as a Hiroshima nuclear bomb. We've blown the tops off of, we flattened an area of the Appalachians larger than the state of Delaware. You fly over the Appalachians today and you will throw up. It is horrible. And the 500 biggest mountains have been leveled. They, they filled 2,200 miles of rivers. 
with rubble. That's the cost of coal, you know, and then they burn the coal. And every freshwater fish in America has mercury, uh, a dangerous levels of mercury in it. The Appalachian Mountains have been stripped of forest cover on the high peaks from Georgia to northern Quebec. The Adirondacks, one-fifth of the lakes is now sterilized from acid rain, and, you know, we're acidifying the ocean. Those are the costs of coal. If you, you know, coal says we're only 11 cents a kilowatt hour, but if they had to internalize their cost, it would be the most expensive way to boil a cup of coffee that has ever been devised. It'd be, be paying 20 bucks a, a gigawatt if they had to. And the same with gas. You know, if the gasoline companies had to pay for the, the oil wars, much less, you know, all the other uh, externalities, cleaning up the Gulf. Uh, cleaning up Valdez, you know, the, the, the $200 billion we spend annually protecting the Saudi Arabian oil pipeline infrastructure. If they had internalized that and that were reflected in the price of gasoline at the pump, you'd be paying, you know, 15 bucks a, a gallon for gasoline. And people would figure out other ways to get transportation. And that's the way things ought to work. We ought to, everybody ought to have to internalize their costs. We need to get rid of the subsidies and have true free market capitalism. Thank you so much, Mr. Kennedy. And now you had an incredible video today, actually, on your Twitter profile that said, if we gave you a sword and some ground to stand on, that you would win this country back. And of course, you mentioned that that sword is money. I want everybody to know that you can visit www.kennedy24.com slash donate, and you can donate even with Bitcoin via Lightning uh, incredible way for this community to do that. And I just want to ask you quickly as we wrap here, are there any other ways that people can get out there, spread the word, and help to support your campaign? Well, I mean, if you amplify our, um, if you have any kind of following on social media, amplify it, tell your friends, encourage people, even if they're only going to give, you know, five bucks, please encourage people um, to to join the army. Oh, um, and then, you know, you're part of our army. You can even a five or ten dollars. Do that. If you can give more, please do. I mean, many of you may notice that I'm, you know, I'm getting slandered and silenced and censored. And I when when people hear me talk and they realize that I'm not a crazy person, not an anti-Semite, not any of the things that they say, not an anti-vaxxer. Um and my numbers are so much better than than Biden's, you know. Uh, that and and I, I you know, as I, my numbers are, are show me beating Trump, DeSantis, etc. Um, people, you know, when they hear me, give me a rethink me, and I, and most of them end up converting. Oh, but the, the challenge is getting in front of people, and we need money to do that. And particularly in these these first five states in South Carolina, uh, New Hampshire, Nevada, Michigan, and Iowa, we need to spend a lot on advertising. And so if you uh, anything you can send us will help. And I'm very, very grateful that for the incredible support that I've gotten from your community, from people. You know, Pointers are a unique breed. Um, they're of all the financial people I've met in my life, 
people in finance, you know, I'm in New York right now, are mainly interested in making a big pile for themselves. And whoever dies with the most stuff wins. Bitcoiners are a different breed. They like money, they like profits, but mainly because it shows that you can make money by do you can do well by doing good, by by winning freedom. And they, you know, they're ideologically based. They're people who love freedom and they're enthusiastic about Bitcoin because it's a symbol for freedom and it's the currency of freedom. Oh, I, you know, I love you guys. I, I, um, you know, I feel uh, I feel a, a spiritual bond with you, and uh, you know, I want to. I really want to promote you. Uh, by the way, um, I you know, before I went down to the Bitcoin Miami conference, people asked me, "Do you own a Bitcoin?" I said, "No, I don't." And I got a lot of criticism for that. And people from the newspaper, from the Washington Post, for example, said. Oh, you're promoting this commodity and it's volatile. A lot of people get hurt and you don't even own any. So I, it happened that right after that Bitcoin conference, I got my pay from the Monsanto case. I got a big check and I said, okay, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. So I bet, bought two Bitcoins for everyone, for each of my seven children. I, that's what I used my Monsanto payment for. So now I'm a Bitcoin owner. And I'm sure that they're going to now figure out a different way to come at me, but nobody can say I didn't put my money where my mouth is. So anyway, I'm uh, I'm really glad to be with you guys, and uh, you know I'm, I'm very very happy for the support that I've gotten from from the Bitcoin community. And nobody can take your Bitcoin once again, everybody. I pinned uh, the tweet that I mentioned before with that video just above, so you can all check it out there. www.kennedy24.com/donate. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, it's been a true honor. Thank you so much for your time. Robert, Natalie, Mark, Marty, uh, you guys are absolute legends. Uh, a pleasure to share the stage with you. And I think we all have to thank Justin Rizvani uh, from Zion for helping to put all of this together. Just an incredible, incredible person who I know we all share a bond with uh, and love having uh, having been a part of this. So thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon. Thank you very much.